From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. So where to start? In the beginning, the end. When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars. But in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. Stay tuned. We gonna change the system. Think about it. Right now. And that's the way it was. That's the way it is. And it's always changing and it is always the same. How's that for psychedelic? We are all seekers after truth. This, 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 this is a special magic. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. I am a traveler. A wanderer. It's always changing and it is always the same. The world is listening. Good morning, Tomas. Good morning, Tonio. I'm excited to have you here again. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. And I have absolutely, well, I have some idea of what we might talk about, but 
But actually, I have no idea what we're going to end up talking about. Right. Well, we've begun, so that's okay. Yes. Well, I, I, uh, it only takes me 25 minutes to get here from Hardwick to get here to the studio. And so since this is my third time, I can say, oh, every time I come to the studio, I find myself, you know, meditating, really, on the way here. I call it being in the twilight zone, really, and, uh, and I like the twilight zone. And so what I was thinking as I was coming down here about this dream I had when I was just waking up this morning... I like that period where you don't have to jump out of bed but can wake up slowly. And I was dreaming about something, and there was something I didn't quite understand that was going on in the dream, so I decided to Google it. In your dream? In the dream. (laughs) But unfortunately, I woke up, and I was quite aggravated. If only I'd slept a minute longer, Google would have told me what it meant. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not that I can remember what the thing was that I couldn't understand. Have you ever had dreams where you wake up and then you want to go back into the dream, so you go back to sleep and you re-enter the dream? Yes, and sometimes it has worked and sometimes it hasn't. Right, right. <laughs> I, th- re- fairly recently I did that and I went, I went back into it like four or five times. I had the luxury of being able to stay in bed. That's, that's yes. But it was amazing that I kept returning back to the same dream, and it kept continuing right from where it left off. Well, don't you feel there are some of us who, uh, at various periods of our life, enjoy getting into our dreams and living with them, and other people seem to not want to do that at all, and some folks are somewhere in the middle. I think this is on my mind because a Facebook friend posted a dream, and it always intrigues me when people post a dream on Facebook. Facebook, for me, is folklore. Facebook is where you, like you used to go down to the coffee shop or the bar and hear a joke and pass it on to the next person. And this friend, and I know her, not just a Facebook friend, put a dream online and her sister said, oh, this sounds to me like, you know, Jung might be of help here. And I always find that very pointless. I was brought up, you know, about dreams. Me and my family, we talked about dreams at the breakfast table and I was taught how to interpret them, really. And so... There we are, Jung, Freud, Adler. The great authorities. The Viennese depth psychology is what (laughs) I'm trying to uh, figure out how to talk about nowadays. Because dreams have always interested people. I love dreams. I've been finding, as I get older, well, even 40 years ago when, when we were hanging out Sunday mornings and talking about our dreams, sharing our dreams together... I was noticing that the boundary between my dream world and my waking world was somewhat porous <laughs> and sometimes m- shifting a fair amount to where I would find myself in the middle of the day wondering, wait a minute, am I remembering something that actually happened or am I remembering a dream? This happens a lot in my life. And here we are on the magical mystery tour, which is... <laughs> This is what we do. <laughs> but this is, this is, you know, something, we're talking about something that I think we both enjoy mulling over. Am I remembering something or am I dreaming it? Have I got it right? No, am I remembering something that actually happened in the waking world or in my waking life? Or am I remembering something that was part of my dream life? The distinction, I think, is, is fairly arbitrary for me. But in our world, it can be relevant because you might run into somebody and assume that something happened and they might be like, nope, 
In uh, your dreams. In your dreams, <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, I've enjoyed so much listening to people talk about these kinds of things and the distinctions different people make. And for some people, like I was saying, there's no point getting into the details and splitting hairs. But for some of us, there is a difference between saying, am I remembering something or am I dreaming it? You pointed out that that wasn't quite what you were getting at. You said it, and let's see if I've got it right. Am I remembering something that I dreamed, or am I remembering something that actually happened? Yes. Right? And so that immediately puts us into the question, what is the connection between things that actually happen and things that we dream? And then the question becomes, in what circumstances, in what cultures, in what conditions are we absolutely certain that what actually happened is far more important than anything a person could dream? Mm -hmm. Or, on the other hand, are there times, and I'm thinking especially, let's say, of a child three or four years old, where it's actually the other way around? What I dreamed, and it could be you or me, if we're recovering from PTSD, or if we're, uh, I don't know, whatever the situation, there are times when something we dreamed is far more important than anything that could have actually happened. Mm -hmm. At least for us. For whom not? Well, for people outside of us, maybe not, but I think it, it it's important to them as well because the effects ripple out. Yes, at any rate, in, in so many situations where you have more than one person, there are three or four, ten, a community of people, those who feel one way and those who feel the other way, can set up an interesting dynamic between them because... Uh, the person who says, oh, I dreamt this and it's really important, might be met with people saying, oh, give me a break, you know, it was only a dream. Mm -hmm. And the person might say, no, no, it's the other way around. What happened yesterday merely happened, but this is the meaning of everything. Yes. Well, there are cultures that do put the dream world ahead of the material world. Here I have to um, bring up a topic about me. The last two times I was here, you tried to get me to talk about myself, <laughs> and uh, it did me good. I had to face the question as I drove home, why do I put up a little bit of resistance to that? What is it that makes me say to Tony, no, 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 I'm not here to talk about myself. Well, I'm not in that mood today, so here we go, right? <laughs> but I've already lost the thread. What were we just talking about? Dreams. Yes, right, dreams. Oh, yes. Look, I haven't read much science fiction because I'm thinking of the kind that was around when in the 50s or 60s when I was growing up and a young adult, Dune. I got enough of a sense to really understand these were people imagining what life is like after the fall of civilization. Now we call them dystopian. And the reason I used to tell my friends I don't need to read them is because I was studying what actually happened after the Roman Empire fell. I was studying the ninth century in England. And the earlier century, 6th, 7th, 8th, but especially the ninth one interested me. By then, the empire had been, the Roman Empire had been gone, you know, we, we are told. It had been dead for four or five hundred years, depends when you say it fell. And so I got to see what life was like after the fall of the empire, and I didn't need science fiction. Well, I've spent a lot of my life in the ninth century... And also in the 19th century, because the 19th century was in England. They were very interested in creating this thing called Anglo-Saxon England. And to some extent, it's a myth, it's a dream. To some extent, it really happened. But then as a teacher, having had so many different kinds of students, or as we say here, advisees whom I advised, I came over and over again. I was going to say younger folks, but I don't think the age mattered much. I'll just say 
Americans, and be blunt about it, who would write in papers, you know, we fell, basically. We went wrong. Once there was, in the past, in the olden days, things were better. But then there was a fall. The fall was either the Industrial Revolution or the beginning of hunter-gatherers no longer being (laughs) hunter-gatherers or the first cities. And this was a very pervasive plot that always puzzled me, except that I sort of saw it as a modern version of Puritanism, of of Christian Puritanism, of sin, you know, we have sinned. Right, yes. There was the fall. Now, we don't believe that it was Adam and Eve and that she ate the apple and he ate the apple. No, 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 we're much more modern than that. But still... But we do make kind of psychological analogies that relate to that eating of the the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Go on, go on, like what? Well, just opening the can of opening Pandora's box, the, the box of duality. Oh, that. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll stick, to, right my little, I'll wrong, stick, I'll stick yeah, to my thread here. Let's this go to your this thread. is relevant. This yeah. is all relevant. What I'm trying to say is that there is a tendency in American culture to blame ourselves a lot. Where did we go wrong? Well, if it's not ourselves, then it's others. Well, there's a problem in American culture about where to draw that line, and especially I find it around the word we, but I want to get to my point about dreams and reality and other cultures. This is picking up on something you said a little while back. There are other cultures, in other words, not ours, where dreams are treated in a certain way. Well, I have to admit, you know, dreams in our culture, whatever our culture is, are not treated the way they were in other times and other places, but I don't feel a strong need and never have in my long life to get deeply into Buddhism and Hindu, I mean deeply, Hinduism, Taoism, all these non-Western cultures and religions that are better than ours. Because everything that's mystical and fantastic about those Eastern religions can be found in medieval Europe. There are writers and thinkers, and a lot of that was there. So I find that in the Christian civilization, if one doesn't think of Christian as the Pope and the Vatican and the Cardinals, but as the entire civilization of Western Europe, which is so maligned nowadays, they were all unfortunately dead white men. They weren't dead when they were alive, but they are now. But within that, and I, this this, this Mexican Jew, you know, have found in, in that over the years, plenty of nourishment. So back to the question about dreams, I think that it's absolutely, I mean, it's so obvious that if you are reading the life of a Sufi saint or of a, for all I know, a Chinese sage, and I know almost zilch about that, or of a Western person, you know, and they have a dream, or they talk about dreams, you're going to find people who believed or knew the value of dreams. Were they listened to their dreams? I was rude about Jung a little while back. You called him a depth psychologist. That wasn't terribly uh, rude. No, I, 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 on, on, on Facebook, when my friend Julia posted a thing, I said, forget Jung. I always tell people, forget Jung, especially if they're feminists. I mean, I cannot believe. I had a really fine feminist student at Goddard who was into dreams, and boy, was she into Jung. And I used to kind of yell at her, really, you know, Jung. How can you be a feminist and be into Jung? But feminists are, and lesbians are. I mean, they like Jung. I mean, it puzzles me. <laughs> well, are you, are you alluding to interpret your own dreams yourself? Well, yes. Yes. <laughs> of with one another's help, yes. Yeah. And especially, I mean, the doctrine that I was brought up with, nobody but you can really tell you the meaning of your dream. Exactly. Because only you can feel the feeling of the dream. Is that why? I think that's that's the core of it. I mean, that that's one of the things that I picked up on is all the 
maybe the symbolic representations of elements of the dream, those are abstract in relation to our direct connection to the dream, which is through our feeling sense, I think. That's the feeling part, like our metaphorical heart is like the portal through which we connect to anything and everything in a direct way. And I think the same thing with the dream. Yeah. I think I'd like to insert a couple of cases, examples. Because you read, so-and-so dreamt such and such, and then they were right, it happened. So this notion that dreams are about the future is interesting. For Viennese depth psychologists, they're also dreams about the past, memories of the past. When you're dreaming, the material that goes into your dream can only have come from your experience. And your experience has been processed by your unconscious depending on whether you, which school of depth psychology you're in, but in one way or another it's been processed so that now it's available for your dream work. And so in your dream you are writing, you're, yes I'm the, I'm the protagonist in the story of the dream, but I'm also the scriptwriter and the director and the producer and the casting I'm the author of it. Perhaps that's why I would feel in the end if I don't understand the meaning of my own dream, it's up to me to figure it out. But other people have responses to a dream. It's often easy to get people to say, oh, I think the dream means such and such. That's what it means to them. Mm-hmm. One example comes to mind. It woke me up a little. This is when I was reading in a college as an undergraduate, I think Herodotus, for a very good course I was taking. And there was this dream that came up. Cyrus, maybe it was Cyrus. Let's say it was Cyrus. The emperor dreams a dream one night. He doesn't like the message. He pays it no mind. The next night, he dreams the dream again. Ah, he says, I don't want to have to do this thing that's in the dream. Already I feel there's so many Hasidic stories about this and Sufi stories about this kind of thing. So in this version by Herodotus, the emperor says to somebody, I'm going to sleep in that other room tonight. You sleep in my bed. And if the dream comes to you, then I'm going to have to do something about this. (laughs) And sure enough... The emperor sleeps in a different room. Somebody, his prime minister or somebody, sleeps in his bed and dreams the dream that the emperor had the last two nights. So that's how the emperor knows this is a real dream and he's got to act on it. I don't know why that story comes back. It's a nice, quick little vignette of other cultures, if you want, you know. You know what I'm getting at. It's a good little story, isn't it? So why is that so relevant? Well, to us, it's so obvious that that couldn't happen, right? For us, it's not a... Unless we have some anxiety about the doing of, you know, the, the message, what we think it's telling us. I'm not sure you're going with this, Tonya, but I can well imagine having the same dream three times nights in a row because of some... And I have certainly had, and I'm sure you have, and probably everybody has had recurring dreams. Oh, yeah. Mine, when I was younger, were always about the toilet overflowing. Right, but this is something <laughs> where he thought it was telling him something that he had to do. Yes, and he obviously didn't want to do it. No. That's what I meant by the anxiety. Yes, but what, what's missing is he didn't believe the dream until it came to somebody else in the same bed, and that's where we couldn't... Well, <laughs> what I'm saying is... He, if I, I, I called you up tomorrow want... morning and say, I dreamed your dream last night. I see, yeah. <laughs> Don't you feel sometimes, has it ever happened to you, that you had a dream about someone you haven't thought about in ages, you've nearly forgotten them or something, and, and then when you wake up you feel you better let them know that you dreamt this dream so that the... It seems wrong to dream about this person and not let them know that you dreamt of Does that ever happen to you? I, I've thought about contacting them, but then I thought, well, yeah. I didn't feel that compelled okay, right. to share it with them right. just because I, right. I, I didn't feel... Well, like there are people who, who feel like if they 
they have a dream of having sex with somebody else, <laughs> they they feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what that reminded me of. <laughs> uh, those people would probably feel guilty about many things. Exactly. Whereas I think... Especially he, feel guilty about the way the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Yes, yes. Whereas I think dreams are an arena that essentially gives us permission to do anything, to experience anything. Absolutely. That's absolutely what dreams are. That's where logic is no longer to have force and the clock. Nor morality or, or any of the other constraints, right. cultural constraints. Right. The um, reason I brought up Jung a second time was because he did say something back somewhere in my readings back then that has always stuck with me. He said, there's an African tribe. Now, as soon as someone says there's an African tribe, that's just the modern way of imagine a community where there's an African tribe where they distinguish between big dreams and little dreams. Little dreams are just for you. But if you have a big dream, you have to call the, the group together and tell them, we dreamt this last night. Mm. And that makes sense to me, especially in the context of what we were just saying, because I took a somewhat unusual, maybe extreme case. I haven't thought about Fulano the Italian years. I dream about him or her, and I call her up and say, or I wrote her. The truth is, I don't think I've done that in ages. Well, I might, I might email somebody and say, I dreamt about you, yeah. But then I backed off from that. I just, let's say you're the kind of person who lives in a community where there's uh, at least a dozen people. It could be an extended family in an African country or Mexico or the United States, for that matter. Or it could be with some community type of thing, you know. And anyway, if it's your nuclear family, you could wake up in the morning and tell your brother or your sister, I dreamt about you last night. That would make sense. And then if it's just a little bit bigger of a community, that could easily happen. I did, in fact. It's in a book I wrote about my first year of teaching where I went into Newton High School and said, I dreamt about you guys last night, and they wanted to hear the dream. And that's how we got to talk about dreams in a class that was about history. Oh, man, said this girl, wait till my mother hears about this. Are you guys learning history? Well, the teacher's talking about his dreams. <laughs> yeah. So that's been on my mind, how to nowadays, because Viennese depth psychology is passé, but nothing much is taking its place. What's passé, what's no longer alive, or what, what William James would have called a live option, is a, a lively conversation about three or four different ways of discoursing on the topic of this dream or of dreams in general. We don't have a shared consensus, whereas there is a sort of a shared consensus that it is important to know what actually happens. <laughs> As to finding out what actually happened, that's always been a problem. But Everyone's always arguing about their version of it. Yeah. We tell stories about what happened, right? Exactly. And then the stories that we tell about what happened, to cope with what's happening in the world today, which is chaotic, different people have different stories they prefer, or as they say nowadays, narratives. And I like the stories that help me make sense out of it because they fit with the kind of plot that makes sense to me. And those stories, there's only about five or six plots you can have. Trump is going to succeed or he's going to fail or it's going to be... There's only four or five possible endings to the current soap opera. Well, soap operas don't end, but that's another possibility. But stories end. Stories have a beginning, yes. a middle, and an end. And that's what we want. That's gestalt. You know, we want closure. And so our dreams... This goes back to what you were saying about the porous membrane. You didn't use the word membrane, but one could have. The porous membrane between... Am I remembering a dream or am I remembering something that actually happened, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there are many moments in our lives when we're doing both at the same time. It could be a dream that we hardly remember, but we might have dreamt about it, you know, either last night or the last few weeks or sometime, you know. And that reminds me of how there's a lot of talk about mental illness. And from the number of years I've been on this planet and interacting with a lot of 
people, a lot of crazy people, a lot of sane people, who, or a lot of crazy people who think they're sane, a lot of crazy people who love that they're crazy, and people who are lost in different variations of those combinations. And I see we're getting down to the nitty-gritty here. <laughs> my sense is that we're all, to some degree, kind of insane. We all have these kind of twisted versions of reality, and most of us are, are kind of obsessed about being sane and being seen by others as being sane. And so we don't acknowledge that. And when we see holes in our narratives or chinks in our armor, we do our best to pretend that they don't exist or to hide them, as opposed to acknowledging that, you know, I think we're all nuts on this bus. We're all a little loosey-goosey on, on this bus. We, we don't have everything tightened down as tight as, as we think we are supposed to. A reality isn't necessarily what we think it is or how we see it or perceive it is. And I think that particularly in our modern era of beginning to understand the, the implications of quantum physics, that some people are, are starting to acknowledge the porosity of the membrane, of the great membrane that we, we tend to construct around ourselves and our, our narratives. Oh, well, that was wonderful. I'm going to bracket off your startling remark about quantum physics to get back to later. But until that moment, I felt like, oh, no wonder I'm happy to be here. I feel seen. I also felt like, Tony, I'm totally wrong. This Viennese depth psychology, what I mean by Viennese, is not at all passe. It's alive and well. It's right here in the studio with me. Many, many people are aware of these things nowadays. They don't need to label it Viennese depth psychology. They've got various labels for it, different names, you know, spirituality, different things they call it, you know. But your basic laying out of what, you know, what you were just saying is what I really mean when I say Viennese depth psychology, that way of looking at the world. Now, two things I'd like to move on the board between us here, this chess game that we're playing. One of them is, I had a friend once who told me sanity is highly overrated. There was this guy in Vienna in the days that I reminisce about, the dear dead days beyond recall when depth psychology was thriving in Vienna, who would go up to strangers in the street and say, excuse me, sir, but are you sane? And the startled Viennese person would look at the person and say, well, yes, I am. Ah, this guy would say, but do you have a certificate to prove it? No, I don't. Whereupon this guy would flourish his certificate and say, well, I do. So, <laughs> and I used to tell this story sometimes, to, you know, especially to Goddard students. You get a certificate to certify that you're sane. And that's what a good deal of certificates are of that sort. Much of that sort of legitimization has to do with the fact that you can be trusted to not be so far out of the loop. that you know, There's something, you're one of us. We can give you some responsibilities here. And I'll tell another story about Tomasito, that's me. When I turned 64... I was here at Goddard with the MA, BAMA faculty of what we called in those days the off-campus program, now it's just the, the residencies. And we celebrated and sang, Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? And I remember feeling at that moment what was so funny was not that somebody would stay out till quarter to four when they were 64. What was funny when we were young was that somebody would be 64. <laughs> and I remember I drank a lot of green apple vodka. I had never drunk it before, and ever since I say, on your 64th birthday, it's a good idea to drink something you have never drunk before. But I'm remembering this because I went up to Francis Charest, 
who knows Jung inside out and who does not share my distaste for him. And I said to Francis, because I had been brooding about my identity, as I tend to do, and I said to him, I have two identities. I'm a Mexican and I'm not a Mexican. I'm at least two identities. But I didn't say that. I said to him, Francis, I have two identities. And he looked at me and said, only two? Well, that gave me food for thought, so I went off and had another shot of green apple vodka. (laughs) (laughs) And came back to him and said, well, are there people who have only one identity? And he looked at me and he said, well, there are people who think they have only one identity. So that brings in a new term, doesn't it, the identities that we have. But everything you said about trying to pass for sane in public, right? That's really what depth psychology was about. How to learn to... And that's where I like Irving Goffman, face work. Face-to-face interactions requiring learning how to have a face and respect the other person's face. It's really a mask. And, you know, in his writings, he shows in minute detail the little maneuvers we do to save face. Reading him helped me understand how to behave at faculty, at, at committee meetings, groups where you're sitting around a table and everyone has to interact with one another. And I was, used to just want to get to work. But no, people would chat about your Aunt Molly and about this and that. And he helped me understand you have to do that so that everyone feels that they have their face on. It's face work. Then you can start working. If you skip that, Sooner or later, everything's going to have to stop while somebody saves face. And it turned out to be so. And, and what you do when somebody loses face, you've shown me very straightforwardly. I've seen it over and over. People in the group help the person save face by saying, oh, no, it was my fault. You say, no, no, it's me who should have lost face. L- allow me to lose face. And then the person says, no, 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 it's okay. And that is how people save face. But not in those words. No, not in those words, no. Whatever it is, right. it's some gesture it. right. that means I'm willing to lose face. So that you don't feel that you've lost faith. So that we don't break the culture of, right. of our... Teamwork. Teamwork. Right. Yes, of our teamwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what was the thing I said to I was going to... Oh, yes, this, this quantum physics. What the hell has quantum physics got to do with any of this? It's, it's the quantum hand grenade that you throw in into the whole pile. <laughs> <laughs> of any conversation? Of, no, of, of culture. <laughs> oh, oh. And <laughs> it effectively blows it all up. And you have to reorder everything from a new perspective. When I was a child, well, not when I was a child, but back as I was growing days. up, back, yes, in the olden back days. when I was younger, right. one of my favorite experiences was to have my mind blown. <laughs> and there are many different ways of doing that. You can do it with psychedelic drugs. You can do it by reading things from other cultures. You mentioned Eastern stuff and quantum physics does an excellent job as well. And it helps give credence to the new dreams that we concoct from the pieces of our old dream or our old cult of story, cultural story, or stories. The um, Romans, whom I allegedly studied a little, apparently used to decide whether something was auspicious or not by reading the entrails of a goose or something, some bird. There are different ways of trying to figure out, you know, these things. Read the mystery, uh, yes, read the unknown. Right, right. A divinar, the divination. Yeah. Casting the I Ching is one of them. And mm-hmm. In fact, I think playing chess was originally like that. And there's many ways of trying to do that. Now, you brought in quantum physics at the end of a discourse that I was much enjoying. Uh, And it felt to me that for some reason you felt that by invoking 
the phrase quantum physics, it gave your discourse a certain kind of legitimacy which otherwise it might have lacked. <laughs> and I thought, that's not Tonio. Whose voice is that? <laughs> no, actually, what I was just doing was like taking an orphan child and inviting him in. <laughs> Baloney. <laughs> no, no, you have some respect for quantum physics. I, I do. I, I can tell. But it? it is, an, in our culture, it's still an orphan child. Oh, but he was being used and invoked as being the most lofty and profound in, insight into the meaning of the universe. It's not an orphan child. It's got about the same status as the dogmas of the Catholic Church used to have with the Trinity and the, and the, and the Immaculate Conception. You think so? <laughs> and nobody can trump it. I mean, if somebody invokes Quantum physics, and it turns out they know what the hell they're talking about. But many you have people to shut are still up. Rejecting it, but many <laughs> only because they're well, admitting that they don't understand it, or because is. they're not admitting that they don't understand it. Whichever, but I mean, so the the topic of quantum physics for me is a technical term. It's as if I said, "Well, partial differential equations shows that I, you know, that I'm right." If you know partial differential equations, which actually is a little bit beyond my reach, differential equations I did get to enjoy, but partial differential equations were a little too complicated. There's always something in mathematics, in pure mathematics, that is a little too hard or a lot too hard. And Newton himself said, I was just a boy playing with shells on the sand, in the, on the on beach. On the seashore, yeah. On the seashore, you know, and I saw sometimes a shell that was more beautiful than the other ones. But what he was basically saying was, I'm just, just dabbling my toes in the ocean here. And so there's always that. So I think I only know one person, and he's no longer alive, who really understood quantum physics. He was a scientist. Most of the people I run into would try to get me to interested in string theory and this theory and that theory are taking the democratized, popularized versions of these things. Can I just rant a little here, please? Be my guest. <laughs> when you do physics... You have to name things, and you can either use Greek names or you can use vernacular names. And it turns out there isn't much difference because the Greek names, when they were the vernacular, were about the same as the English names. You can call something dynamic or you can say force, right? You can say force, you can say energy, you can say power, you can say velocity, you can say speed. All these are technical terms and don't mean what they mean in plain English. They have been given a precise meaning. Check. If I write a check, I'm part of a banking system and I'm not doing the same thing as when I check something off. I mean, it's got a precise meaning. Then what happens is these physicists come up with theories about the universe, the conservation of energy. That was taken for granted when I was young. I wouldn't say it was a self-evident axiom, but you couldn't do science unless you, I was going to say, believed in or accepted the rule of the game. You can't play chess unless you take turns, and you can't do physics unless you are willing to say, I'm going to look at a universe in which energy is always conserved. Once you say that, then all sorts of things become possible as theorems. But you're in, you're in a universe where energy is not conserved, none of those things have any purchase. So then we get to... I was going to say the Reader's Digest level of scientific knowledge. Again, when I was young, in high school, which I hated, we did do experiments. We were not taught that science was a body of doctrines which only a few people could possibly understand and the rest of us had to believe. Science was a way of thinking about things which everybody could and should do. And I think that if ever was the case that democracy was thriving in the United States, it was a time when people believed that there were scientific ways of thinking that sometimes were much more helpful and better than other ways. All of which is to say that something like the Big Bang Theory or quantum physics and string theory, whatever that's all about, are ways of solving problems that arise on a very complex 
chessboard. If you've made certain moves and you find yourself in a certain position, you're going to be checkmate unless you find some move you can make that gets you out of it and wins. And so somebody says, well, let's not have seven of these. Let's have nine of these and see if this works better. And so they try with the nine, they try with the seven, they say nine is better than seven. So nine, now we know there are nine such things. Gluons, beons, gluons, gleons, and gleons, you know? Used to be just electrons and protons, and we had to have neutrons, and we had to have positrons, we had to have this electrons and nonatrons and electrons. And these entities are only known to us because for a countable number of nanoseconds, certain pixels appear on a screen. And then that entity is no more. It only was born and died right in front of your eyes. What a life it had. And, and so this world... Or so it appeared. Well, yes, this is all a model that intelligent people are building of the universe. I'm not knocking the model, but I'm saying it doesn't tell me anything about the stuff that you and me were talking about, sanity and insanity. It doesn't tell me anything about that. Well... Okay. How did I do on my rant? That was fine. I judged myself by whether it had a climax and a punchline. <laughs> for me, quantum physics has correlation with dreams for me. Go for it. I will go into this as with an in open with mind dreams, and let go of my prejudices. As in dreams, we have a connection to our own dreams. Just as we have, some of us have our own connection to various notions or theories as postulated by others. But there are certain aspects of some of these things, like quantum physics, for example, that give credence to the notion of blowing one's mind. Okay, got it. And for me, it opens, in a way, I don't really know how to put this in words terribly articulately or gracefully, but for me, quantum physics allows the dream world and the, you know, the, the waking world to coexist in a more fluid and porous way. Just to take one aspect of it, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, that when you can't see the particulate resolution of an unknown polarity or, or issue, anything is possible. Maybe not anything, but it remains uncertain. And for me, that, when applied to various aspects of, quote-unquote, waking reality... That's mind-blowing, if plugged in in certain ways to what we take for granted in our cultural narratives. And it acts like a hand grenade that can blow it apart if you enjoy such things. I particularly enjoy those things. I don't view reality, the static notion of reality, as a sacred cow. I get great joy and pleasure out of uncertainty that was very helpful. <laughs> very helpful. As often happens now, I've got like three things I want to think about. I tell my wife, my love, Bridget, I have three things to respond. She knows by now. It means I have two and I'm having a placeholder in case a third one comes along. <laughs> <laughs> I learned a lot from listening to you just now. I learned about you and I saw also what the form of my prejudice is and why I'm, I have a knee-jerk reaction when someone invokes quantum physics. I think that you and me have this in common. Having your mind blown, having an epiphany, having an ecstatic expansion and a rising of your consciousness is so so wonderful that anything that helps you get there is worth the trouble. Now, the metaphor you used of a hand grenade surprised me. I far prefer, in my case, to have my mind blown by being tickled rather than having a hand grenade thrown into my world. <laughs> And uh, and I think the metaphor that I like from science is that of a catalyst. I've used this because this is one thing must have come from when I actually, you know, 
went into that physics lab in that horrible high school and we made a super saturated solution. We put in yay much salt or whatever it was into a container of water, boiled it up and it was very hot and it had as much salt as that water could dissolve in it and then you cool it down. So the water is at a level of temperature where it cannot hold that much salt but it is doing so. All it needs to crystallize out is any little grain of anything and then everything crystallizes out and this wonderful structure emerges that was there in potential but was not actually there until some little nothing triggered it and i find this a very helpful analogy or metaphor for example there was part of a facebook group discussion where people were lambasting each other because they were not handling their white privilege correctly it went on for three weeks and I got to see it in slow motion over three weeks rather than in 10, 15 minutes. I could see the dynamics. One of the administrators of this small Facebook group texted me privately, you know, what do you think of what's going on? Well, I felt qualified to give a helpful answer. He said the administrators, the three of them, were thinking of making a statement of some sort. I said, no matter how well crafted it is, no matter how carefully you word it, if you post it, it will just trigger off a second round of this dynamic because there's a supersaturated solution here and this is a catalyst the fact that the administrators have spoken if you say let's keep the discourse civil or something all that energy is still going to precipitate out i don't know if that's a helpful example but you see what i'm getting at you know that one can use scientific concepts metaphorically and i think the reason one can is because they were metaphors to begin with yes absolutely everything in a sense Anything conceptual is a metaphor. That's what I would say, yes. So back to quantum physics. I can understand why quantum physics would blow the mind of somebody who was still believed pre-quantum physics. And that's probably me. I mean, after all the time I put into... And it wasn't that much time into understanding physics as it was when I was young, including some understanding of Einstein and relativity theory, some understanding, enough to know what it would be like to understand it. Because I like mathematics and I enjoy mathematical reasoning. But as someone whose mind has been blown a thousand million times, such as your honored self, well, maybe you need a hand grenade to blow it again, but I don't see... Let me clarify the hand grenade thing, just briefly. I view the hand grenade as the way other more static personality types would view having their mind blown or or the potential of the effect of the mind being blown. For me... It's not a hand grenade. For yes. me, it's the greatest pleasure. Yes. It's the greatest joy. Yes. But I recognize that other people respond to it as it. if a hand grenade's been tossed into yeah, their it. pile. Got it. Into their narrative. Into their cherished Tony, are we garden. talking about scientific revolutions? Indeed, okay. we are. Well, we haven't directly, but... But that's what we're talking about. But I mean, that's, that a is, new paradigm comes yes. along. And the mind says, your mind or my mind says... Golly, that's one I never thought of. Let's give that one a try. Mm-hmm. I think that paradigm. And not only that, but I love it. And let's give it a try. Well, what you love, unless I'm projecting too much onto you, is the conversion experience. The, the, the fluid, the fluidity of, of it. Like me with my friend Francis, you know, how many identities do I have? Exactly. I've had so many identity crises. I, my friend started to number, oh, this is number 137. I'm having another one right now. Not, <laughs> not as we speak, this, these three months. So and, am I. and uh, no wonder we get along and I invoke this thing about you know Kuhn and the structures of scientific revolutions because a paradigm shift I find that a very helpful thing to think about Mm. 
and I've been through a few, and there was a person who was running Goddard when I was talking to her about, and she said the thing about paradigm shifts is when you're in them, you don't really know what's going on. Right. And what are these paradigms? They're, they're really just perspectives. And well, they, I prefer to think of, pardon me, I prefer to think of them as games, rules of the game. Yes, exactly. And, and when I've done work with systems thinking, I've got this workshop I do called Systems Thinking and Spirituality. Pitch it as, like it can be done short or it can be a whole week or whatever. I pitch it as, are you trying to change the rules of the game or are you trying to change the spirit in which the game is played? Now, you can have a game which has a rule, all energy is conserved. And with that game, with that rule, which is comparable to the rule, the king cannot be taken in chess, something like that. It, it makes everything possible. It's an enabling rule. It doesn't constrain you unless you're trying to think about things where energy is not conserved. Or you think in terms of open systems and closed systems, or you're not considering those two options. You, I would need some help because there can be open systems and closed systems in a universe of, where the energy is conserved, and they can be closed and open systems in a universe where the energy is not conserved. I mean, a, a universe... well, I don't know about that. That wasn't my area yes. of formal y study. Yes. Oh, but yes. there right, are a lot right, right. Of, there are a lot of theories, or not just theories, they're considered rules that are written in stone, they're considered absolutes, that are based on the assumption that our universe is a closed system. Yes, exactly. Whereas well, there the are people who... No, it is not. Right, we've come full circle as we knew we would, because this is where the porous thing and the membranes and the dreams... To dream is to enter a universe which is not bound by these. And speaking of dreams that are unbound, this is WGDR Plainfield <laughs> and WGDH Hardwick. Goddard College Community Radio. You want to take a little break? I would like to, uh, because we've reached a certain point of a plateau of closure. We might even take it up a different topic next round. All right, then. Here's a little uh, interlude. Oh, good. Now, you all out there, give a listen to this. For a limited time only, you can order your own tailor-made Jiffy John Outhouse. The outhouse that puts the fun back in your natural functions. Yes, a good outhouse is an asset to any family. So listen to these special features that tailor-made Jiffy John Outhouse has to offer. Sturdy plywood construction, non-stoop walk-in door, solid steel bolt latch, bronze coat hook, secret peekaboo peephole, exciting swirling wood grain and knot holes to study while sitting in there, traditional stars and moon ventilator cut away up there in the rooftop, and a year's supply of glossy, authentic Sears and Roebuck catalogs. And of course, most important of all, three convenient tailor-made Jiffy John outhouse holes. Yes, this popular family three-seater can be yours if you act without delay. But first, remember, you must specify your size and shape. This is important for the utmost in comfort and long hours of natural pleasure. So right now, sit yourself down with a pen and pencil and draw around your butt. Some of you may prefer to send an ink imprint, and that'll do just about as well. That's family three-seater tailor-made Jiffy John Outhouse, Crescent Moon, Tennessee. Like Jiffy John says, put that fun back in your natural country functions. The devil is waiting for me. And we're taking a little break for the next minute or two, and we'll be right back after this.
imagination fits in with the real or the unreal world as you're talking about dreams being either the real or unreal or vice versa. So what we imagine as we are awake, is that sort of like the dream or has the ability to manifest itself as if it was the unreal world and yet we can manifest it in the real world? This was my sort of question. Now, I know maybe you guys, I have a certain experience, and I'll just go through two, two of my dreams quickly. So as a young child, I had, I had a dream once that I was, you know, and I hate to share this with the public, but I had a dream that I was in a cave, and I was very powerful because I had a great big gorilla that was protecting me and was under my control. Another gorilla came in the cave and challenged me, okay? So I look at this as my ego power, and I felt confident because I knew I had a strong gorilla. Then, as they fought, my gorilla started to lose. 
And then I knew I had a problem. <laughs> okay, so my interpretation. Now, this to me, as a young child, to me, this is post-traumatic stress. Okay? Because it made me realize that the fighting or the anger that's coming out from me, which I look at as a natural state of being human, but what I was trying to do with it was to use it to take power over others. And from that point on, I, ne I always reflect. As soon as anger arises in me, I can almost go back to that dream. And I know that that is not a path that is worthwhile continuing on. Now, I lose it at times, believe me. <laughs> no saints. And that has, therefore, manifested itself in my being to look for alternatives to be in this realm, in this realm, period. Another dream I had is I'm a traveler, and I've spent time in Indonesia and Southeast Asia, and I've been doing different things there and going into places and islands like Sulawesi in Indonesia that, you know, ISIS is in and this conflict that is going on in the world. So I had a dream that I was traveling. I was on a river. I wanted to get to a certain place. These guys came down in a boat. And, of course, I took the ride because they were going my way. I got in, I put my stuff in, and then I realized that underneath the canvas was weapons. And this is a dream now. I realized I jumped into a boat with a bunch of people that I thought was going to give me a ride to where I could continue my journey. And I didn't realize that they were terrorists. And they then were going to proceed and make an attack. And this could have been during the Mumbai thing in India because it's a boat thing. And the dream ended. But it has affected me now that I travel that I have to be conscious of what it is, even if I have good intentions, if I want to donate money, if I want to help people just from my own perspective, let's just say I am affecting or giving money to um, these people that are supposedly bad people from our perspective. And if they're being watched, am I being watched? Or if I make the continuation of uh, connecting and communicating with these people, I may have very good intention, but then what if they are on the other side of our political policies? So what that dream did for me is it made me, makes me more conscious. And it holds me back a little bit, not much, because then I use the imagination and then manifest the things that, I want. That's why I was looking at imagination as part of this. Oh, I don't even like to separate them all, you guys, you know. This, uh, I like the idea of magic and mystery and leaving it at that. So anyhow, I'll stop talking to let you guys take over. Have fun with it there. Thank you so much for that. And I think you're a demonstration of, of a very porous membrane <laughs> between your waking and dream world. So, thank you. Yep. Frank, 
I'm really, really grateful that you called in. This is the first time I can think of that I'm having a conversation with a friend and someone calls in and joins in and your two dreams were really, really interesting. I'm grateful to you for telling us the dreams and I'm curious, you know, do you feel different now that you've actually told them? And one question on my mind is, uh, do you see an affinity between the two dreams? I want to highlight two things that I was feeling as I was listening to you, Frank. I had just come back from my little cigarette break. I like to take a break and collect my wits. And while I was out there, I thought, well, I go back in. I'm going to talk to Tony about imagination. And then you <laughs> called in and started talking about imagination. I was thinking about the scientific imagination, the historical imagination. When one makes it a certain kind of imagination, the scientific imagination is a disciplined imagination. So you need both. You need the imagination and you need to have some source of disciplining it so that you keep it within some kind of space. And then you called in and talked about this dream you had when you were young, and it's pretty clear to me, I should think to anyone who listens to you, you have put this dream to excellent use. You have put this dream to the use where one of the things you do is you discipline your imagination without stifling it, without throttling it, without, you know, killing it. Well, you honor it. You deeply honor it. You've, you've invited it into your being. And you use it, is, what I'm, is, is yeah. what I'm saying. And that's one thing we do with dreams. Some of us do with dreams. I'm and really... with imagination. And with imagination. So I'm going to be... Well, we can, if we honor it. It's like the, there's a term, the daimon is a kind of embodiment of, or a personification of our creative genius. Is daimon a Greek word? I'm not sure. I bet it is. Gorilla is a good word. Gorilla is <laughs> a great word. <laughs> and, you know, don't we all have our inner gorilla... So let me ask you about those qualities of imagination. You talked about scientific imagination and disciplining our imagination to use it in a functional way. I want to use the word discipline in a very neutral term, a very technical sense. Mm -hmm. I like playing tic-tac-toe with people. I feel like all you're doing is putting X's and O's and you get to know the person real quick. I like playing chess for the same reason. It's always, for me, a way of getting to know someone and chess if you have no imagination you can make moves and say well this was a legal move but was it a good move in order to know if it was a good move you have to have imagination you have to be able to imagine what the board looks like from the other person's point of view boy i remember i was playing with somebody long ago and my situation looked really bad he was a good player and i said i can't think of anything i can do he says no it looks pretty bad he said let's swap the board around i'd never seen this before we rotated the board so that he was playing the black pieces and i was playing the white pieces i looked at his powerful position i was in a very powerful place he had this inherited this dismal position he made one move he made another move suddenly i was on the defensive he was playing exactly the same situation that i had had and this for me is what i mean by disciplining the imagination it, you get the satisfaction of playing a game and what i want to say about good scientists good historians is they enjoy the game what you're talking about is plugging your imagination into a particular like an equation I wouldn't put it that way. I would put it into throwing yourself into the game. Well, that's what I mean. Yes, but it's a difference between you, when you game. plug in, you're not throwing yourself in. You, oh, are you? Am I misunderstanding? Uh, yes, it? I no, well, no, no. I think it's my feelings about electricity. Plugging you in. You don't like plugging. <laughs> well, I, I, I set myself. Well, on. I love throwing oneself in as well, but. Plugging is just a parallel metaphor. No, that's a good one. It's just uh, when I was three, I set myself on fire by sticking my dressing ah, gown into an electric PTSD. Definitely, and so everything to do with electricity for me. Is so we'll stay awesome. away from plugging in. Well, thank you, metaphors. thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. So one more thing about the imagination. Yes. As you know, I've really enjoyed helping people enjoy math, and I do it by playing games. And I like this quote by Hilbert, who was a great mathematician, 
who heard about one of his students who had turned away from mathematics and decided he was going to be a poet. And Hilbert said, it's all for the best. He never had enough imagination to be a mathematician. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I like that one. Uh But it's not the kind of experience of mathematics that many people have had. Well, it's not the definition of imagination that most people or many people have. People don't think that mathematics... But it's pure imagination. People think that mathematics is the opposite of imagination. But actually, mathematics is pure imagination. Well, it's very disciplined. Yes. You have to fit it into what's permissible. Exactly. And there are very strict rules. Yeah. Well, they're no no stricter than the rules of chess, Tonio. Or of tic-tac-toe. But when it comes to the imagination, through the use of one's imagination, you can create any set of rules or lack of rules that you choose. I'm not sure I can assent to that. Let me put it to you this way. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you... Well, we've got, to, got something going here. <laughs> uh, look, um, let me put it to you this way. Mm-hmm. Is the imagination capable of creating a new game that has not been played before, that is playable and is a good game? Undoubtedly. I very much, I'm sure. I'm I sure. Think, I think it's very rare. I think all the imagination... Oh, ever... There's a difference between rare and possible. Oh, yes, there is a difference between rare and possible. But within whatever universe we're going to talk about, by and large, new games evolve the way species evolve because a good game is improved by modifying a rule. Ah. And likewise, scientific models develop because someone has... You don't ask about a model, is it true? You don't say, did the Big Bang really happen? What you're really trying to understand is, is this model useful? Does Does it it answer? Does it make sense out of these chaotic things? And if someone says, I have a model that makes sense out of things that your model did not explain, then people get interested and say, well, what's your model? And if it's a better model because it explains more things, then people prefer that model. And it could be just a slight variation of the original model, or it could be an entirely new thing. Well, let's get down to the nitty-gritty then, because by and large, if you take an existing game, and I'll take the case of tic-tac-toe, which I've done with my workshops, and I say to people, what's a rule that you could change? It turns out there are some rules that don't matter very much, they're minor, but there are some that are rather important, like that you can only put the O or the X in the square and not on the line. If you put it on the line, then it's easy to get three in a row, and it turns out the game is no longer much point playing. You have to take turns. Yeah, there's another one you can say, well, how about if I take two turns at a time? And most changes in a rule of a game are lethal, just like most mutations are lethal. A few survive. You're on the air. I hate to call back again. This is Frank. And oh, I'm glad you called back. That's called a conversation, Frank. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what you're talking about right now, I wanted to give you my experience with imagining, okay? Please do. I spent, I spent quite a few months in... Buddhist monasteries back in 2000 and 2001. And the first saying of the Dhammapada, okay, now this is real. Mind is the forerunner of all things. As we think, say, and do, so it becomes. If we do wholesome acts, goodness follows like a cart follows an ox. If we do unwholesome acts, it follows as close as our shadow. So what I did, imagination, from that first saying of the Dhammapada, I came back and decided to sell my guns. I had hunting guns. Hadn't hunted in a long time. I decided if mine is the forerunner of all things, I can bend steel with my mind. So I sold my guns in the States, transformed it into cash, which was liquid. And then I went back to Laos. I went to Laos and Vietnam. 
and I donated that money to victims in Vietnam and then to the victims of the secret war in Laos. I broke it up into small donations. I did it for about three years with the money that I had. I'd go back in the winter. Now, I had to get my body on those buses, put up with the dirt. I had to put up with the authority, either U.S. authority or Lao authority, to be able to try to do this. I had my some of my pictures stolen out of my room because I was doing this without any nonprofit organization. I was doing it just from my sole experience and from the discipline of what I had experienced through Buddhist practice, which probably you can get from Christian practice if you put the discipline in, you'll come to the same conclusion of your own spirituality, and then from there, you act out. And so imagination is very real and very possible to create a joyful life if one acts on it. So you guys were on right on target. That's it. I'm hanging up. <laughs> you guys have fun with it. I'm so glad you called back, Frank. I feel it's an honor to have had you join this conversation. And I think everything you said really, really just sums it up really, really truthfully. Such a deep experience that you're talking about and so true. It's a beautiful, beautiful, and especially since you told us the dream about the gorillas the gorilla, to begin exactly. with and the boat. It's now, a variation on, th on a theme. It's, it's like adding on to a theory right. and in you a put, way, and you put an approach a, to life. Right. And you made it very clear what I was groping for when I said the word disciplined, what it means to discipline an imagination. You used your, you know, this is very, very, I'm just going to keep mulling over and meditating to, over what you told to us. To use for practical purposes. And to shape your life. And, and to shape your relationship with, with the world. With other people, yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Yep. We have these gifts, and imagination is one of our, perhaps it is our greatest gift. I do love my metaphor of playing games and so on but there are some things in our life and when i picture you on those buses and i think of what i did in mexico on buses like that and the authorities of the sovereign states i feel that i can really understand what you went through there frank and it seems to me inappropriate to say that you or i were playing a game in any pejorative sense i mean if one wants to use it in some profound sense okay but i think there are times when even i have to stop using the idea of a game with rules i think there are times in one's life and frank was talk you were talking about one of those and there have been times in mine where one basically saying is i'm not playing this game mm -hmm. this game is not a game that is playable as far as i'm concerned and the game we're talking about is the game that everybody else calls life and so you are moving way out to some place where you're only on you're on your own and you've got to do this thing because you've decided you're going to do this thing and the decision wasn't the decision that you reached the way you might say oh i'm going to go and buy some spinach today it was like this was a life decision Likewise with the gorilla. And at those moments when we were experiencing what Eric Byrne called game-free intimacy, he talked about sick games, and I'm talking about healthy games, but there comes a point in your life, often, could come every day, where it's not a matter of playing a game anymore. It's something else. Elaborate, because there's, that, there's an alchemy of turning one thing into another, but you're talking about transcending the whole thingness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right, not not being 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 free of what we in the United States tend to call society. Mm -hmm. Being f so, you you were touching on this or talking about this earlier, Tonya. When you are asleep, you are alone in the world. You are there's no constraints that the world is putting on you. And when you're awake, that's not so easy to sustain. Well, there are, I'm talking about these 
I won't say crisis because that always has a negative connotation, but these crossroads in your life where you say, I'm going to take this road and it doesn't fit into anything that I call playing a game. That's when you take the chessboard and say, I'm through with this chessboard. I'm through with these games. I cannot play this game anymore. And that's perhaps how revolutions happen when many people do that. But anyway, in a certain, in your own life, it's, it's what I call an identity crisis. I can't be that person anymore. That person is mm-hmm. dead. But where do you go from there? Do you, you pick get up onto a- Tonio's show and talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> but I think most of us end up picking up a different game. We decide to change. Well, games. I'm talking about. I mean, uh, Frank mentioned PTSD, and I'm starting to realize, you know, it's it's useful to think that many people, some people have far more than others, but many of us have some form of it. And when you've had a really, when you've gone through a really rough period in your life, and basically it's a death of somebody, then with or, luck, or there's abuse, a, or yeah, right. Then with luck, after the death comes a rebirth, and then you join back in games. But I must say, speaking for myself, after I was down and out and hit rock bottom and came back up, I was never the same when I was at a social gathering. I would look at these people, and it'd be like somebody across the room. I'd meet their eye, and I'd say, "Oh, you've been there. I've been there." But these folks are acting as if there's no such place as hell, you know. And if you've never been to hell, well, it's okay, easy to keep it up, you know, the cocktails and so on. But if you've been there and got out of it, then you recognize kindred spirits when when you come near them mm-hmm. without too much trouble and, yes. and and in hell there is no game in hell there's no game there's no game no i mean when, when you talked about abuse i mean we're hitting something very profound at the very end here but there are times which are so intense that no one's playing a game anymore it's something else unless you want to use the word game the way you use quantum physics as this sort of metaphor for the whole universe <laughs> but I'm, I'm aware we're coming to the end of so the session is like sort of the the concretization or crystallization of one extreme yeah, isn't it? Yeah. And it, yeah. it cannot evolve beyond that. Right. But yes. we don't know that necessarily. Well, some of us do. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Perhaps we think we do. <laughs> uh, wow, I've met my match with you, Tonya. <laughs> I'm, I'm used to having the last word. <laughs> your mind I am mad to my mind you are all sane so I pray to increase my madness and to increase your sanity my madness is from the power of love your sanity is from the strength of unawareness shall we dance how do you like that quiet <laughs> <laughs> yeah this has been a really wonderful experience for me, and I'm really grateful to you. And you've given me so much to think about. I feel like I did get to articulate things that I carry around inside me, which don't often, don't always get the chance to do. But I had to face the fact that uh, I got a lot to learn again. <laughs> well, life keeps going on until it doesn't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, hopefully, we keep it alive. It's time to go. It's okay, been bye great. Bye bye. <laughs>